Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I am so sorry that we haven't got uh, nice, pretty pictures to um, uh, project behind me. Um, uh, I spent some time um, trying to produce some nice, pretty pictures, but um, technology has been against us. I'm, I'm going to um, uh, read to us, though, from a passage that we looked at in just... Uh, um, couple of weeks ago, Genesis chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, come with me to Genesis 2. What we've planned in the series that we have been um, uh, embarked upon is that we would, um, uh, first of all, take uh, a, a reasonably close look at Genesis chapters 1 to 3. But then, for a large part of the series, we want to trace how um, the themes that are established in, the, in that great creation and fall narrative, the story of the goodness of God's creation of us and uh, uh, our sin, how those themes develop in different ways. Nathan, have you got some... Good. Oh, there might even be some technological solution that, uh, that arrives. And we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of um, uh, material to look at. So let me read to you from Genesis uh, chapter 2, pray, and then we can look at this um, a rich, deep um, subject of men and women. Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Uh, then for a few verses, animals are presented to him, but uh, they're not going to be suitable helpers. Um, so the Lord God, verse 21, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will, you will give us hearts to uh, engage with this topic, minds that are clear to understand what your word has to say, um, and indeed wills, Lord, that are prepared to respond. Give us what we need, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. No luck so far. <clears throat> um, the subject of the role of... Uh, women, in particular, in uh, society, has been a very, very live one for at least 150 years. Um, there was, for instance, in the 19th century, the women's suffrage movement, culminating in 1918 with votes uh, for women in general elections for the first time, finally full suffrage for women on an equal basis of men in 1928. But um, then the, the next wave of discussion was um, uh, dominated by feminism of the 1960s and 70s and numerous pieces of legislation 
um, have been passed over the last 50 years to, to, um, to seek to ensure that women have an equal place in society uh, with men. In the last decade or so in particular, though, we've, we've moved into a new phase, a phase where the dominant voices are voices of what uh, the sociologist Robert Bella described as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, we're told, holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core. The purpose of their life is allowed it is allowing that core to find social expressions in relationships. People are going beyond gender as a given thing or a binary thing or anything like that, um, uh, certainly as a sort of uh, immutable biological reality, but to um, uh, define gender as uh, a, a completely varied, um, uh, varied and rainbow-like array of different identities. But that's not led really to harmony. In fact, it's led to deep divisions at the moment. Um, uh, feminists who are what is termed gender critical um, uh, have been hounded out of academic posts and uh, vilified. Um, it has led biologically male people to insist that they have the right to go into um, women's refuges, for instance, and in fact effectively driving those women out of those refuges. It has led to a dangerous clamping down on free speech so that anyone who questions the certainties of the day is, uh, is shut down and so much more. We are not living in a happy time when it comes to gender. And it has to be said, over those 150 years, the Christian record of engagement with those issues has been distinctly mixed. On the one hand, uh, in every age, there has been a, a, a conservative or a cautious reflex about some of the uh, developments. Now, in part, that is good. Um, wise people will be cautious about um, uh, new movements and new ways of thinking and want to examine them carefully. Christian Christianity is built on a foundation that, that proposes that actually God has set down for all time, for all peoples, certain fundamentally immutable realities about what it means to be human. And uh, uh, Christians have all, always then, in certain respects, been been rightly cautious but um, historically as well that is often overbalanced into just a, a blind resistant conservatism that uh, has not been willing to accept any challenges that have come on the other hand Christians have sometimes just gone with the flow of the culture as it moves on and that is not necessarily bad Sometimes cultural changes um, come along which are frankly highlighting issues that had been unnoticed or un un undealt with in the past. And Christians have an obligation to be responsive to, to that. 
Um, sometimes the church uh, realizes it in certain non-fundamental ways, it has to flex with, a soci with society. Uh, one of the things that any missionary knows, for instance, is that, is that uh, with, there are certain core, so, uh, uh, unchangeable things that, are, that apply in every culture, in every age, about what it means to be, be, to be Christian, and some things that look really quite different in different ages and different cultures. A church that has uh, had six different locations and presently is meeting in a cinema knows that. There is a certain degree of flexibility. But again, that flexible response has been often negative. Simply going with the flow of the culture, going with the path of least resistance, not asking deep questions about what the Bible really says. The, 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 the best responses down through the ages have combined actually a sympathetic and thoughtful engagement with the cultural situation and the questions that are being raised in different ages with a careful reflection on the Bible, on the scriptures as given to Christians once for all. And when God's church has responded in that way, sympathetically, carefully, thoughtfully, but biblically, it's been very, very fruitful. At, at, at our best, the Christians down through the ages have been prophetic on the issue of men and women, as well as many, many, many other, other issues. They've prophetically called for reform of, of, uh, of, of, of conservative and, frankly, unbiblical attitudes. One, one um, local example of that, for instance, is uh, we used to meet in the evenings in New Road Baptist Church. New Road Baptist Church has a, a wonderful history going back to a founding covenant in 1780. Uh, they still read it every year and uh, that original covenant was signed by I think it was eight people four of whom were women um, it was a long tradition already of dissenters that they recognized the equal dignity of men and women in the life of the church and the original people who covenanted were not just the men as would have happened in many other societies but were the men and the women covenanting together. 150 years before um, universal suffrage was in this country, the Baptist, particularly the, the Baptist and other nonconformist churches, were allowing um, that voice to women. Um, free, free churches in particular have a wonderful history of... Uh, of prophetic calls to social reform, possibly uh, more um, often than their more conservative Anglican cousins, for instance. They, they pioneered the anti-slavery movement. It was uh, evangelical Bible-believing Quakers who got the anti-slavery movement going. They, let, uh, they, they led numerous campaigns for democratic reform um, 
of which uh, uh, women's suffrage was only one. They, they led movements of education for all, particularly founding what were called ragged schools. Most schools would only allow children who could be dressed well enough, who had enough money to be dressed well, to come to school. And it was dissenting uh, churches, non-conformist churches, that again and again uh, determined that no, they wanted to educate the poorest of the poor in British societies, mm -hmm. and uh, on the uh, on the subject of women, for instance, it was the it was the Bible-believing Christians who recognised that prostitutes on the streets of London were overwhelmingly victims who needed to be cared for and taken into refuges, whilst Victorian society tended to treat them as moral delinquents and dangers who needed to be locked up in prisons. No, make no mistake about it. The, the God's church at its best has been prophetic on uh, these issues. And also, at times, offering prophetic warnings. For instance, the, uh, the feminist wave of the 60s and 70s had many, many good things about it as people campaigned for, uh, for equality. But it also carried with it many people who wanted to dismantle the whole idea of the family. And Christians rightly spoke against that. We are still living with the consequences of the, the, the widespread collapse of stable family structures that came with that movement. Now, we need to sympathetically engage, think carefully, read, read the Bible carefully, and be prepared to be prophetic. Prophetic in calling for reforms, prophetic sometimes in calling uh, in warning our society. What I want to do today is, is to do a very small part, really, of that, uh, uh, of that task, to try to sketch out the, the basic biblical picture uh, that unfolds after the foundational chapters of Genesis 1 to 3 of the relationship between men and women, as God describes it and intends it to be. We're actually going to focus down on one uh, aspect of that because it is a, an important aspect for us as a church at this moment. What are, what are the respective roles of men and women within the life of the church? We're not going to touch on family. We're barely going to touch on, on um, wider life, though you may want to raise some of those things over lunch when, when we gather. What I want to do, first of all, is, is, is do a big picture sketch of uh, the, the, the whole scope of, uh, of the Bible and, and to sort of place us where we, where we are in it, because it, it can help us, I think, to get our heads around what God is calling us to. Two weeks ago, we looked in Genesis 2, in particular, at creation and the way that God created human beings, men and women, male and female, in general. And we saw that it was a wonderful picture of harmony and complementarity. We haven't got time to go over it again this morning, 
But um, just just to it, it, listen to it, if you weren't here a, a couple of weeks ago, we've, it's on the internet somewhere. And, um, and, and let me just remind you, there was a, a beautiful symmetry, equality, but also difference about the man and the woman as they were... Uh, as they were first created. But it was characterized by delight and harmony and, and unity together as one unit, the man and the woman. Then the fall, the first sin that described in uh, Genesis chapter, uh, in chapter 3, where the snake comes and they eat the fruit and all that uh, jazz. And um, uh, there we saw... The image of God that they bore um, uh, in their creation was still there, but it is marred. It is damaged. In particular, their wonderful male-female relationship is now characterized by disharmony. They blame each other um, and, are, and are threatened by each other now in Genesis 3 after they have sinned. And it is characterized by power struggles as well. In particular, remember that part of the curse was that, that the man will rule over the woman. And it is characterized by what you could call relational instrumentality. That's a horrible phrase, isn't it? That, 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 he, that, that the man in particular now sees the woman mainly in terms of what she can do for him. Adam named his wife. He names her for the first time. He'd only named animals up to then, but now he names his wife Eve because she will be the mother of all the living. There's hope in that because their mandate was to multiply and fill the earth. But it is a degraded relationship now. She's got a name given to her by her husband. So at the fall, the image of God in the man and the woman, is marred, it is damaged, but it is not lost. And then to jump a long way in the Bible, um, when we come to Jesus, we find that we find redemption. We find Jesus, Jesus coming and dying on the cross and rising again and, and uh, give, bringing us full forgiveness and also bringing us new life, new life by the Spirit poured out into our hearts, as uh, uh, the c confession uh, said, that, that brings fruit of love, joy, peace, and all of those things. There is, there is a status for Christians that we are redeemed, and that is very, very important. But it is equally important that it is a, it is a now and not yet status. Take, for instance... That snake back there in the, in the garden in Genesis 3. Satan. One of the curses on, on Satan was that um, uh, he, the descendant of the woman, would crush his head. And in the New Testament, we saw la uh, last week that uh, the New Testament says that Satan was vanquished at the cross, beaten defeated because his power over us is that he can bring accusations before God against us 
And since Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross as the penalty for our sins, none of those accusations can stick. Because we are utterly, completely forgiven. And so he is described as vanquished in the New Testament for us now. He no longer rules over us. Except that he still prowls around, says Peter, like a roaring lion. There is a now. Satan has no hold over us. There is a not yet. He still manipulates human beings and creates all kinds of mischief. And that now and not yet uh, about our existence helps us to understand very much what is going on uh, then amongst men and women today. Men and women in God's church today as well. Let me, for instance, take, take uh, a little word that uh, we've already mentioned and uh, show you how it unfolds in the rest of the Bible. It is that word rule. It's important because it's the first description, um, uh, at least from the mouth of God, of the, uh, the, the, the broken, fallen relationship between human beings in general, let alone men and women. He will rule over you. And uh, that idea of rule works itself out through the rest of the Bible. At times, rule being, one might say, a necessary evil. It would be nice to think that nobody ever need, needed anyone else to exert power and authority over them. But it is the nature of the state, for instance, that it is created by God to restrain evil. Romans 13 used the language of rule as it talks about Christians submitting to authority of the state. Because in this fallen world there needs to be rule even though it is part of the damaged relationships of human beings. But here's the interesting thing I want you to engage with this morning. Amongst the people of God in the New Testament, there is what I think can only amount to an intentional avoidance of that language. Amongst the people of God, there is to be a set of relationships and roles which are not just that crass, straightforward, this person rules over that person. In fact, Jesus said um, in the Gospels, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over, rule over you. But you must not. Instead, you must be amongst them as servants. Mark 10, Luke 22, 
for instance. Or in 2 Corinthians 1, 24, um, Paul, talking to the, the Corinthians, says, it's not that we lord it over your faith, not that we rule in that way over your faith. We work with you for your joy. It is not that there's no leadership in the, in the, uh, uh, in the churches, um, but um, slightly different words are used. The word lead and leader is used a lot. For instance, if you're taking notes, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Uh, mm -hmm. Leaders in the church are said to keep watch over the church. They are said to admonish in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. They are described as servants and shepherds and uh, uh, various various other things. There is a softening of the language intentionally. Listen to 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who, was also, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, eager to serve, not lording it, that's that word again, over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. There is an expectation then that amongst God's people, there will not be that classic, coercive uh, mode of rule. seems to me that in, in that observation lies an awful lot of the, um, uh, the pain and the difficulty that um, uh, people have felt on the subject of, of men and women. Because there is no doubt that there has been far too much of that fallen mode of relationship in families, in society, in the state and within churches. And we find it hard to get our heads around the idea that there could possibly be something that is starting to approximate to Genesis 2 kind of relationships. Where there is simple delight in complementarity. We live, though, with a not yet to that redeemed experience, just as the not yet of Satan. Sadly, you don't have to read long in the, new, in the pages of the New Testament to realize that there were all kinds of trouble in the, uh, in the local churches and that sometimes leaders needed to, to say some tough things. And so we live in that tension world. We're not yet perfected, but we, we are working hard to uh, head towards the ideal of human relationships in general, let alone between genders. But there will be a final consummation, creation, fall, redemption in Jesus and final consummation, the, the, the new heaven and the new earth. The return of Christ and the restoration of all things.
Revelation 4 verse 10, uh, a revelation which is full of pictures of, of a heavenly reality. We find the we find 24 elders who seem to be the the sort of representatives of the leaders of God's people, angelic, casting their crowns before God, giving up their authority. Because now there is just the one rule of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. And no human being needs to be involved in any kind of wielding of authority. So that's the big picture then. And perhaps that gives us a little bit of a clue of the challenges of what it means then to live as God's people in this world. In the way we relate in general and in particular the roles of men and women in God's church. Now, we can't deal with everything. So I want to I want to just spend some time just bringing together some New Testament um, evidence for how then um, men and women did relate in local churches and to try and build a picture for us that has a little bit more granularity than that, that big picture. First of all, very briefly, um, uh, remember the inclusion of women in the ministry of Jesus. True, there were 12 disciples who were male, but there were many other women who were close to him and friends with him. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 41, they're, they're described as disciples. They followed Jesus, which is the same word as disciple. They were crucially uh, chosen to be the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Distinctly countercultural, since in general, the witness of women was not counted in either Roman or uh, uh, a Jewish world. But God doesn't care and chooses for women to be the first witnesses. Moving then on to the early, early church, we have numbers of examples of women ministering alongside the Apostle Paul. Let me take you through a few of them. Um, sorry, we can't project uh, verses, you may want to um, uh, follow them with me. There is Phoebe, a deacon mentioned in Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, says Paul, a deacon of the church in, in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Almost certainly she is, as the NIV translated, a deacon, uh, officially appointed office in the, in the church of Cancrea, which was near Philippi. Uh, she seems to be the bearer of the letter to Ro the Romans. That's why she is mentioned. She is trusted by Paul on this important business. She's described as a benefactor. Some people have wanted to translate that as as leader, and in some situations it can be. So she's, it would describe her as, 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 a, a, um, as, as a church leader. Doesn't quite probably fit with the text because um, she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. And there's no, no suggestion that Paul uh, believes her to be his leader. Um, 
Uh, and so the NIV has chosen this word benefactor. It was someone who, who supplied the needs of another person as, as an important and wealthy person. That seems to be who she is. But uh, even if we should not put the word leader there, she is a valued, important, trusted person on important gospel work, traveling to Rome to take the, Paul's letter to the Romans to that church. Then, also in Romans 16, there is a, um, a mysterious woman called Junia. Listen to this. Greet Andronicus and Junia. This is verse 7. My fellow Jews who've been in prison with me, they are outstanding amongst the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. That has... Um, uh, as you can imagine, um, caused um, some consternation. Some people have suggested that it's not a woman's name, Junia, but that's almost certainly wrong. It is a woman's name. Uh, what does outstanding amongst the apostles mean? Some people have suggested that it means, and, and it may, this may be true, that they are outstanding um, uh, amongst the apostles. The apostles agree that, agree that they are outstanding. The text can support that. Um, but probably more likely, it's uh, Paul is using the word apostle not to describe the 12 apostles. Sometimes in the New Testament, the word apostle is, is used just more broadly for someone who is sent out. And there is no suggestion uh, that, that Andronicus, for instance, the, the other person mentioned there, let alone Junia, ever joined the 12, there were 12 plus the Apostle Paul who were, were appointed to be the founding apostles and once they died that office disappeared. But the New Testament allows for others who are sent out and at times called apostles. Here, are, here is a couple it seems, Andronicus and Junia who are outstanding amongst those who are sent out, amongst those who are missionaries. They've gone to prison for their gospel work. They are extraordinary people. And she is as much an extraordinary gospel worker sent out as he is. We must, uh, uh, we must um, recognize the, the importance then that, that women had in the Apostle Paul's um, network of gospel mission. Or to take another character who um, often gets mentioned, Priscilla. Priscilla is married to a man called Aquila, though she always is named first, almost certainly because she was of higher rank. And possibly just as a person, because she was a more prominent character of the two of them. Um, they were active supporters of Paul, providing, uh, because they were wealthy, providing houses for him to uh, minister from. And indeed traveling with him to uh, provide all the support that he needed on his gospel ministry. And on one occasion, in Acts chapter 18, they meet a man called Apollos. He was an extremely able man but uh, not quite there theologically. He um, in verse 26, we see Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home 
and explain to him the way of God more adequately. There is no doubt that this woman was very, very actively involved um, actually in teaching and educating uh, one of the foremost evangelists of the first century, this man, Apollos. And then there's a couple called Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 3 we read, I ask you, my true companion, help these women. They, they've got into a bit of difficulty and conflict between them. Help them. They have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, hear what Paul is saying. They contended at his side. They're, you know, they're not just um, uh, you know, cooking, c- cooking the meal in the, in the back. They are in the back room. They are at his side, these two women. Contending, that word is used often for, for engaging with people to help them to see the truth of the gospel. Indeed, Paul goes so far as to call them his co-workers. And when you look at his use of the word uh, co-worker throughout, you find that it, he uses it for people who are specially set aside in gospel ministry, not necessarily uh, receiving financial support for it. He calls Priscilla and Aquila his co-workers, but definitely devoted the primary um, engine of their life, the primary activity of their life is gospel ministry. And here are these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who are absolutely involved in that. And there are other women that Paul um, mentions um, just in Romans 16, Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, and so on, who worked hard in the Lord, says the apostle. So we're building a picture, uh, a picture, in fact, of uh, a ministry which is far from a men-only um, gospel ministry in the first century. It is a rich network of gospel workers of both genders working together. Women as well, but the Apostle Paul repeatedly mentions, um, uh, spoke in church. Uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll come back to in a, a little while, he, he mentions explicitly that women um, will pray in church. And that women, as he says, will prophesy in church. Uh, we simply haven't got time to uh, dig into what that might, uh, might mean. But um, uh, So let me just give you the conclusion that churches of, of our kind uh, tend to have for that. Uh, some people would want to see it as a sort of very specific... Um, um, sort of ecstatic um, ability to speak words directly from God into situations. But, but um, uh, I'm not convinced of that. It seems much more that it is spirit-inspired insight into what God would say to us in our situation. It will not go against Scripture because the Scripture is the deposit that is laid down once for all. 
And it will not have the authority of Scripture by and large elsewhere. It makes it plain that prophecy should be judged by, by the church. But it will be an activity in which, in which we are looking for and hoping and expecting that God will help us to understand how we should live now in our particular situation. And there is an enormous amount of what someone like me says that on that definition would count as prophecy. Indeed, um, uh, the Puritans, many of the Puritans used to describe preaching as prophesying. Taking the, the unchanging word of God and uh, with prayer and the help of the Spirit, in helping a local church to identify and to understand what it means for them in their situation. A famous Puritan called William Perkins wrote his book on preaching. He called The Art of Prophesying. So whatever we think of, of prophesying, and there is no suggestion in, uh, in, uh, in the New Testament that I can see that it has ceased to be something that we can expect to happen in churches. Women were explicitly allowed to do it. Let alone uh, other things like words of instruction, revelation, tongue, interpretation, and, uh, uh, and so forth in uh, the rest of 1 Corinthians 14 alone, where it's not explicitly said that um, uh, women will be doing it, but it does, Paul, the Apostle Paul does say without qualification, anyone who has a word of instruction and so on should offer it. Listen to verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14, for instance. What shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So here's the picture then that I hope is, is uh, building for you. Um, the Apostle Paul in his gospel endeavours built networks of men and women to, to promote the spreading of the gospel. And in local churches, the Apostle Paul expected the local family of God to be a place where men and women were actively engaged in the life of the church, in the gospel life of the church, in seeking the wisdom of God, in, in um, uh, encouraging and, and admonishing and uh, speaking into one another's lives. Anyone who thinks that uh, Paul was a sort of unreconstructed misogynist needs to read a little bit more carefully as to how he conducted himself. Women are highly honoured in uh, his world. So it is important when we hear caveats from the Apostle Paul that we take them seriously as well. And he does have caveats. Let me uh, um, uh, go through a couple in particular um, to, to give you a sense of what he is saying. We, we can only skate over them relatively briefly, but let, let me, let me um, take you to them. If you've got Bibles, turn up 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
I'm sorry we can't project it. Verses 3 to 6. I want you to realize, says the apostle, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a man does not cover, if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should never she should cover her head. Um, now we can't dig into that in depth this morning, but let me um, uh, let me just um, suggest a few things. Um, one is. If we are Christians here this morning, we, we simply can't just reject that as sort of, you know, the old unconstructed Paul and uh, move on to our favorite verses. We need to make some serious effort to try to integrate what he says with the rest of his teaching. He was not, or at least there is no reason that we should assume that he was deeply inconsistent. And we should make an effort at least to understand him. The second one is that this idea of headship is the key, potentially controversial thing in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, we need to notice that headship, um, even in how Paul has described it, encompasses a wide variety of relationships. The head of a man is Christ, is a a relationship with enormous disparity but then the head of Christ is God is an ex is a wonderful relationship of uh, God the Father and God the Son that in that includes submission but also deep equality so that to see Jesus was to see God there was the the, the, the we are not talking about uh, a disparity of widely different creatures in that case we are talking about uh, a disparity with a fundamental equality as well. In the beginning it was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And Paul does not explain which of those kinds of headship uh, he, he is talking about. We should not immediately assume that it is, it is that rule kind of oversight that Jesus definitely exerts over all human beings, for instance. Some people have questioned whether the, uh, the word head implies authority of any kind. They have suggested that head, like the head of a river, is much more about the source rather than, the, uh, rather than any kind of authority. Um, as far as I can see and most responsible exegetes, it is difficult to see the word as at least um, uh, in the overwhelming number of cases where it is used as, as not implying some kind of authority. Um, the, the, uh, the support of head as just meaning source but with no sense of any authority over it is very, very weak 
in um, either in the Bible or indeed in wider literature of Paul's day. Some people have suggested, well, he may have some sense, uh, some idea of authority there, but it is just for that cultural situation. And we should, we, we, we should feel free to throw it off for other cultural moments. That's something that we need to engage with carefully. It's important to recognize that all moral reasoning is effectively a, um, a seeking to understand universal principles and apply them to a particular situation. Whenever we do any moral reasoning, that is what we're doing. New questions come up. For instance, is it theft to uh, take, take possession of someone else's cryptocurrency against their will when, frankly, most of the world doesn't recognize it as a real currency anyway, officially? And you're going to have to do some thinking about fundamental principles and this particular situation. And that is clearly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He does have some very culture-based um, parts to his argument about it being automatically shameful for a woman's head to be shaved. It was in that culture. It is not necessarily in every culture. Go to some African um, uh, subcultures, for instance. But he seems to be relating that to this universal principle. There cannot be much more universal than the relationship between God the Father and God the Son when he says the head of Christ is God. He is doing normal moral reasoning. And whilst therefore people who have, have uh, looked at this have felt free to not think that the precise details of a woman's head covering is a universally applicable thing. They have not felt free to walk away from what seems to be the fundamental underlying principle that the apostle has. So this text is, is speaking about some form of authority relationship. Not, not I would suggest, rule in the classic um, Genesis 3 sense, but some form of authority relationship. Another text which is important for us to look at and then we will have to bring our time to a close, is 1 Timothy 2. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Is this just for the situation of the Ephesians, that a woman should um, learn in quietness and not teach or assume authority? Whatever that means. Well, it is difficult to, to suggest that because, again, as he does his moral reasoning, Paul is going back explicitly to something which is not particularly of one culture. It is the founding culture of all cultures, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam was formed first, 
we're told. Now, we've already spent some time on that and seen that, yes, he was formed first and he was given instructions from uh, God and he had a responsibility that uh, came with that for the whole family. And indeed, he bore the burden of the curse because of you, says God to Adam, though everyone's responsible, cursed is the ground. And the woman was deceived, says Paul. Not, it's not because he thinks women are gullible. How could he when he had such uh, honoured uh, and wise women uh, amongst his friendship group? No, again, we have seen in Genesis 2 uh, and 3, the deception came in because all of them were overturning the order that God had set. The woman was listening to the snake. The man who had the instructions from God in that situation decided rather to listen to the advice of his wife. Because you listened to your wife, says God to Adam, cursed is the ground. That is not an instruction to every husband never to listen to their wife. But it is an instruction that every human being, if they have heard from the living God, they must put the living God ahead of any other human opinion. And Adam had. But now they overturned that order and that was the, 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 uh, the, the root of the problem. So it is not quite the crass statement if we uh, have read carefully Genesis 2 and 3 that we think. But it does have a sense of order about it. What is it then that he, Paul, does not permit a woman to do? To, uh, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have, assume authority over a man. We know now it cannot be all speaking since women prophesy. In fact, there are general admonitions to everyone to teach one another and admonish one another um, uh, and so on. Um, it seems... That Paul is using this word teach in a relatively defined way. In fact, he may put it together with or assume authority to make it absolutely clear what he is talking about. Because those two roles are characteristic of elders in God's church. An elder must be able to teach, says Paul of Timothy. And there is that oversight of elders in churches that we've already looked at. Not ruling, but nevertheless leading God's people. That, in turn, fits with the other prohibition of silence of women in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. We're told that women should remain silent in the churches just after Paul has explicitly said that women will prophesy. But also after he said that those prophecies should be judged. 
and most commentators suggest that it is that weighing of prophecy in which elders take a lead as they consider what God is saying to God's church, to his church. Not lording it over, but leading and working amongst God's people to bring some sense of coherence to what God may be saying. All that together then means that we as Trinity um, seek to follow this balance of what Scripture says by saying that, that the one office that uh, seems to be only men in the New Testament is the office of elder. And we wrote that into our constitution a number of years ago. And that is what we live by. However, that does not mean that the elders assume all responsibility and simply demand that others obey. We hold, we distribute um, responsibility and authority very, very widely and seek to build a rich network of relationships, men and women, um, taking and bearing responsibility in the life of, uh, of the church. We seek to lead by consensus overwhelmingly and to bring all of the church or the vast majority of the church with us so that we are trying to live out that model of leadership, the 1 Peter 5 that we saw earlier um, uh, describes. Indeed, in good moments, in good eras, in any church's life, it should be as close to the Genesis 2 experience as, it, as one could imagine. A beautiful, complementary, delighting relationship with one another. Albeit that there is a not yet. That sometimes error creeps into the life of the church. Sometimes there are problems in the life of a church. And that those who lead and assume responsibility, like Adam in the garden, have to take particular responsibility at those moments. It means, then, that women will be very actively involved in the life of, of the church, as alongside men. Does it mean that women preach? Is a question that reverberates in churches like ours. Well, for, for me and for Trinity at the moment, that's, that's a, a, a slightly open question. But from the Bible, the New Testament evidence, it must mean that we have to have in our life as a church the opportunity to prophesy, to seek to speak to God's church about what we, what all men and women believe he may be saying to us. The biblical word exhort is probably the closest to a preach or to most preaches in a church uh, like ours. And it's not said whether that is only for men or not. The only prohibition is specifically on teaching. And that word teaching seems to be confined to the authoritative conveying of the body of Christian truth as laid down by the apostles. 
some of what I do, particularly in a, in a sermon like this, is doing that. But some of what I would be doing on an average Sunday would be much more like exalting or even prophesying. How we work that out in our life as a church may vary slightly between different churches. Some would say that, that every time someone speaks from a lectern at the front, it is an elder or it is a, a quasi-elder, shall we say. Others would say that it is more broadly a variety of people who can speak from this lectern. Sometimes someone clearly speaking as an elder to his church, to the church. Sometimes not so. You may want to discuss that some more. Whatever we do, I'm convinced that we have the opportunity to be prophetic to our culture. To a culture which is at war so often. A culture where men and women and indeed people with all kinds of, of, uh, uh, of, of, of different attitudes towards gender are set at one another's throats. And who are putting one another out of jobs and deplatforming them. Not so with us. It is our calling to work out what it means to live as God intended us to do. And that will include being rejoicing in our gender. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, he created them. But it will also involve living at peace. One day, there will be no authority of any kind to be exercised between human beings. Because then the dwelling of God will be with men and women. Then there will be no evil or mourning or crying and the not yet of redemption will no longer exist. But for now, we have to live in the now and not yet as a prophetic community. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you will help us Help us over lunch. Um, we ask that you will bless us. And we ask that you will give us what we need to live out your calling in this world. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm actually going to cut the final song because we